Our Lord Jesus Christ is the light of the world. And His Word is a light to our pathway, a lamp for our feet. And as we walk in the darkness of the age, we walk in the light. It is a joy to fellowship together around God's wonderful Word, to share the good things of God, and to be a part of the ministry of a thriving local church in the middle of a disaster that we're experiencing here in our culture and in our Bay Area. It's a joy to welcome you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you for joining us tonight. Well, what is the study on tonight now? What's the subject tonight? Well, we're going to be looking at how Jesus treated a woman who was caught in adultery with grace and truth. And some other people were affected also by the way he treated her. So it's an interesting study. Would she be welcome in our church? I sure, sure hope so. Oh, what did she look like? I have no idea. Oh, my. I think she probably looks surprised. That would be my guess. <laughs> Oh my, well she was caught in the act. Oh yes. Caught in the very act. All right, we'll be reading about her in John's Gospel chapter number 8 in preparation for our Bible study tonight. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, then, he came again into the temple. And all the people were coming to him and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law, of, in the law Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say then? <laughs> they, they were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him, but Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone and the woman where she was in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go. From now on, sin no more. It's an interesting passage that we'll be looking at tonight. Again, our study is, is out of the book, uh, The Thriving Church by Dr. Dean Taylor. And frankly, uh, we're in the middle of two chapters that I just get stuck on. He, he puts about three paragraphs into this, in, into this story, but the more I got into it, the more interested I got into it. So we're not going to get through this as fast as I had hoped. But I, I hope that these lessons are a blessing to you. But before we get there, I do want to remind the men of a couple of things. First of all, men uh, in our church, this Saturday we are having uh, a prayer breakfast at the church. And I think since he's already announced it to his Sunday school class, I can let you know that Mr. Samuel Cahill, one of our teenagers, is going to be giving his first ever devotional 
I've been kind of priming him and getting him ready. I think his mom and dad want to see him serve the Lord. And Samuel's got a heart for the Lord. So I hope that you'll come and be an encouragement to him. We're not going to pick him apart. We're just going to encourage him. And we're going to listen to what the Lord's laid on this young man's heart. And I hope that'll be a blessing to you. But that'll be at 9 o'clock on Saturday morning uh, in Browning Hall. I'm getting those sandwiches untouched by human hands. I've already got a list of men that have already signed up. I'll get more sandwiches than that because I know some of you men just never sign up for anything. You just kind of pop in and we'll be glad to have you. I think we'll have plenty. And then also, um, I want to remind the men of the upcoming men's retreat up at Wolf Mountain. That's March 11 through 13. I thought I had this thing upside down for a minute. But uh, March 11 through 13, it's $172. You can register at wolfmountain.org or you can call their number um, 530-273-8709 and someone there will take your information and get you registered and I hope that you can go with us. Right now I think we've got four or five guys signed up and uh, we've taken as many as uh, I think a dozen in the past. So let's see who can go and we'll make this a, a good time together. All right, uh, let's get in our Bibles and let's turn to Acts chapter or John, John chapter eight. That's pa Acts is Pastor Kelly's business. Uh, we're in John chapter eight, talking about uh, the pattern of grace and truth. Remember now, in John chapter one, it, the Bible tells us the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the pattern for grace and truth and how we're to conduct our Christian life. In Ephesians, it talks about us measuring up to the fullness of Christ. And so we want to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's see how he dealt with people with this idea of graciousness and truthfulness uh, from chapters 9 and 10 in Dean Taylor's book. We've already looked at at uh, the uh, religious and moral man, we'll touch on that again. We've looked at the religious and immoral woman, we'll touch on that again. And last week we, we were dealing with the crowd of hungry followers. And Jesus dealt with every one of them uh, as sinners, but they were unique individuals. But he always brought this graciousness and truthfulness into the mix as he spoke with them. He is the ultimate example of graciousness by which you and I as Christians are to approach uh, the unbelievers. Too many unbelievers have uh, been mistreated by some legalistic Christians who kind of look down their nose at somebody who's fallen into sin. I think of this poor woman uh, that was caught in the act here in John chapter 8. What an embarrassing thing for her. And yet Jesus showed grace and compassion to her. We don't need to be holier than thou. We should be humble before people, recognizing that we have, as Christians, already experienced the amazing grace of Jesus Christ. Because we're no better than anybody else. We're just sinners saved by grace. And it's important for us to remember that. The minute you start sticking your nose up in the, in the, in the realm of being around unsaved people is the day that you're going to become very ineffective as a witness for the Lord. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 9 remind us of where we've come from. I was saved as a six-year-old boy five, the day after my sixth birthday. And, uh, and, and, yet, and I've been in church all my life, but yet I was a sinner in need of a Savior, and so were you. Uh, and uh, we still have to deal with sin each day. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 9 says, For while we were still helpless at the right time, 
Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That verse 8 always sticks out in my mind. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Undeserving. Verse 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. We are indeed beneficiaries of God's amazing grace. I heard that sung the other day, and I thought, they missed something. Uh, for They said, I, for such a soul as me, the, scriptures, or the, the song was written, for such a wretch as me, Jesus died. We need to remember that we were wretched sinners on our way to a sinner's hell when Jesus Christ died in our place to save us from that awful fate. And so therefore, because we have been recipients of that grace, and then we've been commissioned to share that grace, we should go boldly to proclaim to those who are lost of their need for salvation. Uh, and like a good doctor will go to a person who has a malady, and he will talk about the remedy, you and I need to be that for the unsaved. They have a malady called sin. They have a curse over their heads. And until they find the remedy of Jesus Christ, they're in bad shape. And we, need to, we have the, the answer for them. We must be gracious, but we must never flinch from directing people to the truth found only in God's word, even when the truth hurts and some people don't want to hear it. For nobody can be saved from their sin and its consequences until they have heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. I wanted to get that from Colossians chapter 1, verse 6. They need to hear it and understand the grace of God in truth. This is graciousness and this is truthfulness that we need to be giving to people. So let's review again some of these examples of how Jesus dealt with people in their various unique situation. All as sinners, but different personalities and different depths, I guess, of sin, however you want to place it, however you want to describe it, uh, different types of sin, but still sinners in need of a Savior. There was that religious and moral man in John chapter 3, Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel. And he came to Jesus knowing that his religion and all of his teaching was not good enough to get him into heaven. Jesus took him to that place in Numbers where Moses raised up the brazen serpent, put it up on the rod, and those who had been bitten by the snakes could look at that, and by, by looking and trusting that, they could be healed from the snake bites, otherwise they died. And Jesus used that as an example of what was going to happen when they raised him up and put him on the cross. And those who look to Jesus Christ for salvation and accept him as the Savior can be glorious saved, gloriously saved. Thank the Lord we have evidence uh, from later chapters in the book of John that Nicodemus more than likely did accept Jesus Christ as Savior. He defended Jesus before other Pharisees, and then he was involved in the burial of Jesus after his crucifixion. So Nicodemus was a man who was religious and, and moral, but he still was a sinner in need of a Savior. Thank God, I believe he was saved. Then we have in John chapter 4 the religious and immoral woman. You know, you can be religious and be a, an awful person at the same time. This poor woman was, was, uh, was married five different times, and at that particular time when Jesus came in contact with her, she was living in sin with a man that was not her husband. And yet Jesus met this half-breed Samaritan, 
and set her at ease by just simply asking for a drink of water. He was a decent, kind human being and earned the right to be heard. And then he offered her living water, and if she partook of the living water of salvation, she would never, ever thirst again. My dad wrote a song, There's a Fountain Flowing Free with Living Water. It is offered now to lost and dying men. Come and drink of full salvation. You will never, never thirst again. What a wonderful blessing we have in salvation through Jesus Christ. Jesus wasn't ugly about exposing her sin, but he did in such a way because until you understand that you have a malady, you do not want the remedy. Until you know that you're a sinner, you do not know you need a Savior. And uh, you don't think you need one because you think you're okay. This woman needed to know she was a sinner. Jesus told her in a gracious way. He told her the truth. And she came to know the Lord. And many people in her town there, Sychar in Samaria, also came to Christ. In John chapter 4, verse 41 and 42, many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Praise God for those who were saved that day in Samaria. Then in John chapter 6, we see where Jesus spoke with a multitude of people, a, a group of hungry people. Uh, and in John chapter 6, Jesus went to the Sea of Galilee and, and a big crowd of people came and they were there to meet him. They had heard about miracles that he had done, of people he had healed, of, of turning water into wine, other things that Jesus had done. And they wanted to be a part of this. They wanted to see what was going on. They followed him simply for, not, not for spiritual reasons. Uh, they also thought that maybe one day he'd feed them. And sure enough, that day he did feed 5,000 to maybe 10,000 people from a little boy's lunch, an amazing thing. He did it abundantly, turning uh, two pieces of fi two fish and five pieces of flatbread uh, into a feast that fed those people so much that they were full and sleepy and literally fell asleep, I believe, along the hillside there. And then the disciples went around and collected 12 more baskets of this food for their own enjoyment and their own needs down the road. Jesus demonstrated one of the most wonderful characteristics of his grace, abundance. Grace is by its very nature generous, and that's what Jesus is. Dean Taylor had they gave us that quote. Now, then through another miracle, after he fed the five to 10,000 people, in John chapter 6, you can read about how Jesus walked on the water and met his disciples in a boat as they were crossing the Sea of Galilee to go to the other side. And uh, then they immediately, the boat was immediately there on the other side. And uh, the crowd woke up and figured out that he'd gone someplace else. They caught boats and went across the sea and to follow him along to see if he'd feed them again. Just like Moses and, and the miracles of the, of the manna from heaven that came down and fed those millions of Jews as they went through the wilderness. And, uh, and how, Jesus, how God provided for them. They thought, well, Jesus will give them a, a free meal. And, uh, and and take care of them from, now, from here on out. But Jesus talked to those people and he said, you don't need just physical bread, you need spiritual bread. You know, I think some people go to church simply because of the free meals that we have, like lunch and mingle or maybe a potluck dinner that you go to at some, some church. 
But uh, but we need to be going for more things than just the fellowship and the food and the fun. We need to be going for the spiritual food that we can only get from Jesus Christ. In John chapter 6 and verse 27, Jesus told the disciples the day after he fed them, or not the disciples, but the multitude after he fed them, he said, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father God has set his seal. Well, the crowd was still hoping uh, to work their way into favor with God. And so they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that you believe, believe in your heart in him whom he has sent. Later on in John chapter 6 and verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. So Jesus Christ, he's the bread of life, made it clear to the multitude that what they needed was not just to eat and live and breathe and die. They needed to partake of the spiritual life that only Jesus could give. By the, the time when he came to the cross, came and died on the cross to save us from our sins, Jesus went to the cross to accomplish that purpose. And we have a responsibility, Christians, to share what Jesus did with others who need to hear about the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I went to continue studying, and I went on through into John chapter seven, and there's really nothing in Dean Taylor's book about this, but I just wanted to hit on this a little bit. What was going on between the crowd of hungry people and the woman caught in sin? In John chapter seven, Jesus eventually left Galilee. He was up at the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, and then he went south down to Jerusalem to partake of the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, or the Feast of Booths, is what it could be called. And uh, as was his custom, all along the way he continued to teach people, and people were still following him, wanting to learn, wanting to hear what he had to say, maybe seeing if they were going to get some more bread. I don't know what all they followed him for, but he continued to teach them, and the crowd continued to grow. And this made the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, very jealous of Jesus. They were trying to build their big group. They were trying to build their power and their authority and their rule, spiritual rule over the multitudes. And here Jesus, this carpenter's son from Nazareth, is, is gaining a crowd that is big, as big or bigger than what they have been working at for years and years. In John chapter 7, verse 31, the crowd believed in him, it says, and they were saying, when the Christ comes, the Messiah comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? So people were not only beginning to follow him just because of the miracles, they were beginning to really believe that perhaps Jesus was the Messiah, and indeed he is. Now this is not what the Pharisees wanted. They, they were looking for a conquering king. They were not looking for a prophet. They were not looking for a, a wanderer. They were not looking for a carpenter's son to become the Messiah. And so they became very jealous. And in John chapter 7, verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about Jesus, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. They must have had a band of, I don't know, you call them 
call them goons or whatever you want to call them, but they had a had a had a had a group of of enforcers who they sent out to try to turn things around, and uh, they went to go arrest. They sent them to arrest Jesus, but when the when the enforcers met Jesus, they were so impressed by what he said and what he did. These words of grace and these words of truth, these things are things that people did not say in those days. But they were so impressed that they failed to accomplish their mission. They, they also began to, I think, believe in Jesus Christ. The goons sent by the Pharisees started to follow the Lord. And this made the Pharisees very upset and so when, they, when their enforcers returned with the message they didn't want to hear, uh, they, they, uh, they asked them, why did you not bring Jesus? In John chapter 7 and verse 45, and the officers answered, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. So Jesus had won over some of his persecutors, uh, even through this gracious words and these words of truth, that men knew they needed to hear. In the next passage now, we're going into the passage which is our main study for tonight, in John chapter 8. It's interesting, if you go to the end of chapter 7, you see where all the people went home. But it says in the end of chapter 7, that, uh, the first part of chapter 7, everyone went home to their home in John chapter 7, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Uh, Jesus had said before, uh, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus was here as a total servant and a wanderer, somebody to go from place to place, simply speaking truth and grace. And the Lord provided, God provided for him all along the way. They went to their homes and Jesus went to the park and there he slept for the night. Then he got up very early the next day perhaps after a night of prayer, perhaps after a night of just rest. And then he returned and he went back down to the temple. And Pastor read that so well in Acts John, John chapter 8. And, uh, and down he went early in the morning in John chapter 8 verse 2. Jesus came again into the temple and all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. And having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What then do you say? And they were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. As I was studying this out, I thought about our own day. And here we are in a day that is really a, quite a mess. Sin is being called good, and good is being called evil, and, and we are seeing a, a, a growth of people who are living in open, immoral sin, and sometimes just being celebrated for it. We have parades in the park to celebrate sin, and uh, it, is, uh, it is a day of much wickedness, and yet we are to approach this with grace and truth. We're to approach people who live in sin, as this adulterous woman did, with grace and truth. We need to know how to do this. This is why it's important that we, we look at even this awkward situation. Uh, Pastor said, I wonder what she looked like. I'm sure she was shocked. I'm sure she was surprised. Her hair was probably a mess and she was quite disheveled. That's my guess, uh, being caught in the situation where she was. 
So these arrogant Pharisees now have forced Jesus into this awkward and probably embarrassing situation. Here we have Jesus, a single man, being asked to judge a married woman about something that he as a single man had not been involved in. And very awkward, very much uh, not something that any of us would really like to be caught, of, caught in the middle of, especially if you're the Holy Son of God who can't look upon sin. But he's being forced into this, and the Pharisees are challenging the Son of God who knew no sin to pass judgment on this married woman. But he had no legal authority to do so. He was not a king. He was a teacher. He was a preacher. He was a carpenter's son. But yet Jesus rose to the occasion as he always did, with those words of grace and truth, with that heart of love and compassion that did not waver from the truth. The Pharisees were half right in their condemnation of the woman. In Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 10, it says, If there's a man who commits adultery with another woman, another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. That's the Old Testament law. That's the law of Moses. In Deuteronomy chapter 22, it's, it's spoken of again when God gave the law the second time. If a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, thus you shall purge is the evil from Israel. And then if this woman was a, a young, engaged woman, betrothed is the way the, the King James put it, it's a little stronger than, than just the kind of engagement we talk about. This is a, someone who was married technically, they just hadn't come together to live together as a married couple. But uh, even if, if this kind of a woman were caught in this situation, uh, even the method of capital punishment was, was prescribed in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 23 and 24. If there's a girl who's a virgin engaged or betrothed to a man, and another man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death. The girl, because she did not cry out in the city, and the man, because he's violated his neighbor's wife. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. So according to the Pharisees, this woman had been caught in the very act, and though therefore, so therefore she was worthy of death. She was worthy of judgment. The letter of the Old Testament law called for her death. You see, God takes immorality very seriously. In the Old Testament, this was the prescription. In the New Testament, Jesus or it's, it's spoken about again in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4 says, Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Now, these self-righteous Pharisees were half right in their judgment. Now, the law required that not only the woman be judged for her sin, but the man who was obviously involved was also to be judged. Uh, but where was the man? That's always been the question I've had in my mind when I read this story. Where was the man? Uh, if this woman had been caught, we know there was a man involved. And if the Pharisees were truly interested in upholding the law of God, they'd have had the man there. But what they were trying to do was to put Jesus into a place where they could trick him, a place where they could try to get him to do something that was beyond his authority at that time. He is the God of the earth. He is going to be the judge of all. But at this point, he did not have that authority. 
And uh, they, but uh, these Pharisees weren't interested in doing the right thing. All they wanted to do was, as someone put it, to pierce Jesus on the horn of a dilemma. What's, what dilemma? Well, first, Jesus claimed to be the son of the holy God of the universe who cannot look on sin, so judgment is necessary. But Jesus also had been proclaiming a message of grace and forgiveness of sin. That didn't seem to jive in their minds. And then beyond that dilemma, there's also the dilemma that the Romans were in charge of Israel at this time. And the Caesar had passed a law that said that the Jews did not have the right of capital punishment. That was reserved for the Roman soldiers at the direction of Roman rulers. The uh, University Press Bible background commentary says the law demanded the execution of this woman. But Rome had removed capital jurisdiction from the Jewish courts except for temple violations. Thus, the Jewish leaders test whether Jesus will reject the law, compromising his patriotic Jewish following, or reject Roman rule, which will allow them to accuse him to the Romans. One way or the other, they thought, we've got you, Jesus, we've got you, and we are going to take you out. They thought they had beaten him. Well, Jesus just went about his work, what he had really come to do, and that was to save sinners, to point them to their need, and to provide the way of salvation for them. Matthew Henry said, in this matter, Christ attended to the great work about which he had came into the world. That was to bring sinners to repentance, not to destroy, but to save. He aimed to bring not only the accused to repentance, by showing her his mercy, but the prosecutors, those Pharisees also, by showing them their sins. They thought to ensnare him. He sought to convince and convert them. What a difference between uh, the, the grace of Jesus and the brutality of a, of a, of a law mentality. In great wisdom and with great grace, Jesus turned the trap on the accusers. He sidestepped their trap by approaching the situation as we've been talking about with grace and truth. How did Jesus show grace to the sinners in this situation? It was not just the woman he showed grace to. He showed grace to the Pharisees. He, he First, he showed grace by what he did not say. John chapter 8, verse 6. They brought this woman to him and, what are you going to do about it? And Jesus just stooped and and with his finger wrote on the ground, it says in John chapter 8, verse 6, he stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. He ignored the challenge altogether. He allowed everyone present to think about the situation. And, uh, and perhaps he was silently praying there as he wrote in the dirt uh, at the floor, on the floor of the temple. Interestingly enough, this is the only time in this passage, we have two different times where Jesus wrote, and he wrote in sand or dust or dirt. And, uh, and it wasn't recorded for us. There had been a lot of speculation about it. We were talking a little bit about it before the broadcast started. I wonder what he wrote down. Obviously, God didn't want us to know. If he had, he'd put it in Scripture for us to read, just like he did when Daniel was in that room and, and uh, the handwriting on the wall took place. Meeny, meeny, tekel, you farson. And uh, what was meant by that uh, in those days of Babylon? But Jesus, this is not recorded for us in Scripture, so anything anybody has said to say about it, including me, is mere speculation, and I have my own ideas. But there is a lesson in grace here. Jesus could have 
as the judge of all the earth, the creator of the world, the one who created the men, the one who created the woman who's caught in sin, he really was is the ruler of all. And he could have lashed out and said, you wicked, awful woman, you proudful, proud and, and arrogant Pharisees. But instead he just wrote and let them think, let them consider what was going on. In Psalm chapter 46 and verse 10, we're told, Cease striving, or be still in the King James, and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. You know, sometimes the best thing that we as Christians can do is just simply stop talking and start praying. And ask God, the Holy Spirit, to work in the lives of people. The Pharisees had come to spring a trap, but Jesus didn't fall for it. While they goaded him for an answer, he just stooped quietly and waited for their own guilt to arise in, in the surface from their heart. At the same time, the woman was also paying attention, and I can't imagine what was going on in her mind as well. This poor lady had been really embarrassed and brought through it. So Jesus dealt with them being graced by not saying anything, by what he did not say at that time. But then later he showed grace by what he did say. Jesus knew the right thing to say and the right time to say what needed to be said. In Proverbs chapter 25, verse 11, it says, Like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. We need to ask God to give us wisdom. Set a watch over our tongue so that we only say what needs to be said when it needs to be said and to be quiet until then. You'll remember that because of the conviction the Pharisees uh, felt in their hearts, the men left one by one as Jesus scribbled there. And Jesus wrote in the dirt. And then he stood and spoke to the adulteress, offering her the opportunity to recognize his grace and his compassion to her. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10 and 11, straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Now, the grace of God did not ignore her sin. He did speak truth to her, but he did it with compassion. And he did it without a judgmental aspect to his voice. As we walk with the Lord, we can learn when to be silent and when to speak and how to speak when it's time to speak. Jesus showed, showed grace to the Pharisees. He showed grace to the woman giving them an opportunity to come to the right conclusion in their own minds. How did Jesus speak truth to the sinners? Now, he, 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 uh, he provided grace, but then he also spoke truth, which is what he always does. Jesus exposed, first of all, the sin and hypocrisy hidden in the hearts of the Pharisees. He knew what was behind their accusations. He knew that they had a legalistic mentality, a legalistic morality that lived to condemn and to, to win an argument. All we want to do is be powerful. All we want to do is be right. All we want to do is push everybody else down so we look good. But Jesus expressed a grace morality that offered redemption and renewed opportunity for those who repented. The Pharisees' legalistic morality was impersonal. We want to use this woman to get our, our point across. They were selective. They brought the woman, but they didn't bring the man. 
Uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 6 and verse 11 says, God will render to each person according to his deeds. There's no partiality with God. But those who have this judgmental spirit will excuse some people so they can bring judgment on people they don't like. The Pharisees' legalistic morality was punishment-oriented. She sinned. She deserves judgment. Let's throw a rock at her. But the Lord Jesus had a grace morality. It was personal. He looked at her with eyes of love. He cared for her. He knew that she was a fallen creature for whom he had come to die and provide salvation for. His morality is universal. It's for all. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, Romans 10.13 says. It is grace-oriented. Yes, she's fallen into sin. Let's help her get out of this. Let's redeem this situation and get this woman back on the straight and narrow way. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, it says, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. The Pharisees wanted to push them down. Jesus wanted to bring them up. Grace salvages rather than savages individuals. I hope that you have a grace mentality and not a legalistic, judgmental mentality. In each of these points, the morality of Jesus conflicted with the moral assumptions of the Pharisees, just as it conflicts with all self-righteous self attitudes towards other people. In James chapter 2, verse 13, a verse that I just absolutely love, judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. That's where the Pharisees were. But mercy triumphs, King James says, rejoices over judgment. How positive is the message of grace and truth compared to the legalistic morality of Pharisees and self-righteous people? The words Jesus spoke into that awkward situation demonstrated the truth that grace defeats judgment every time it is administered. In John chapter 8, verses 7 through 9, when the Pharisees persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And then again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was, uh, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone, and the woman where she was at the center of the court. Again, the speculation, did he sit down and start writing out sins by alphabetically, adultery, and then working his way over to lust, did he work his way over to self-righteousness? I wonder if he looked at voyeurism, which is what probably caught this woman in the first place. I don't know what it was, how he did this. Uh, maybe he wrote out the Ten Commandments. Uh, maybe he wrote out the names of the men who were standing there in the particular besetting sin that they had. There's all sorts of speculations. We'll never know until we get to heaven and if Jesus wants to tell us. And uh, as we were, Deb mentioned this before we started, he may just say, it's none of your business, don't worry about it. But whatever it was, the Holy Spirit used it. And he used the silence, and he used the opportunity to think about the situation, for, to bring these men to conviction. In verse 7, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her, is often used to excuse sin. The attitude is that we are free from blame because everyone else has done things that are wrong, but this verse does not excuse sin. 
Rather, it condemns those who are guilty even though they've never been caught. I always think about this. When I was a youth pastor, I used to tell the teenagers, when you point at somebody, remember there's three fingers pointing back at you. You may be just as guilty as the one that you're accusing. But grace is still available to you. It condemns our sin, but grace is still available. The badgering and the accusation stopped when the Pharisees came to realize one by one that they were not worthy to pass judgment on this woman. She was just another sinner like themselves. Jesus used the law that the Pharisees claimed to love to bring them to the realization that they were not without sin in the matter. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 7, the law says, The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Again, as I was meditating on this and thinking about this, and I'm a youth pastor, a camp director at heart, and I think of young people all the time. I live by that motto, touching the future with truth from the past. I'm always thinking about the next generation. And it's interesting to me to note that it was the older men who first felt the conviction. It's the older men who first walked away. The younger men in all of their vigor and all of their self-righteousness were not quite as eager with age, the brashness of youth that is prone to ask what's wrong with what I want to do is often replaced with what will be the consequences of what I'm doing or what I've done. Our young people would be wise to listen and learn from the mistakes and the past failures of their elders, their parents, their grandparents. Young people, pay attention to them. And when they warn you of sin and the consequences of it, don't brush it off and assume that you're going to get away with it. For all of sin that comes short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death and all of us are going to face consequences for what we have done. Learn from the mistakes of others. Learn the lessons that they have learned. Listen and avoid the heartache and the pain and the shame that some of your parents and your grandparents and older people who have fallen and been restored have gone through. Jesus' words of truth to the Pharisees were also words of grace for some of them. As they walked in way and shame, they were given yet another opportunity to turn from their self-righteousness and come to the Lord. I believe some of them did at some point. Many of them did not. Many of them decided to regroup and regather and to come back with, to sharpen their shrewdness so they could come back and attack the Lord once again. And eventually they did get him to the cross. But he rose victorious from the grave. And he was able to save even the ones who laid him on the cross. The truthful words of Jesus brought conviction and at least temporary change to the Pharisees. Once her accusers were gone, Jesus also spoke truth to the fallen woman. Jesus told the woman to stop her sinful ways. Jesus was not soft on sin. In Luke chapter 19, verse 11, after he said, I don't condemn you, but he said, go and from now on sin no more. Stop doing it. Repent. Turn from your sin. Now the story ends there. I don't know what happened to that woman. I don't know what happened to those Pharisees. We have no idea. Scripture doesn't tell us exactly. We don't even know her name. I think she's probably glad about that. 
But we can only hope that she accepted Christ's forgiveness that day and that she trusted him as her Savior and that she decided to follow him with all of her heart. Whether she did or not, Jesus made the truth clear. He did not condone her sin. He did not condone the sins of the Pharisees either. Jesus and sin are incompatible. I like what Dean Taylor said about this passage. This is one of the few things I actually took out of his book this time. This is the message of grace and truth the church should publish to every person in the community. God promises forgiveness, but not so that you can stay the way you are. When he forgives sins, it is to set you free so you can begin to live your life in a new way. Christian friends, I hope that you are determined to live a life that's holy and pleasing to the one who gave you that amazing grace and provided salvation for you. The Apostle Paul later addressed this need to abandon sin when we trust Jesus Christ. Our love for him motivates us to live holy lives that please him and bring him glory. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15 say, The love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Christian friends, we have the word of God. We have the truth that the world needs. Whether they're sinners like the adulterous woman or self-righteous people like the Pharisees, they all need to hear of the grace and truth that's found in Jesus Christ. They need to be reconciled to God. We have a responsibility to speak words of grace and truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ, to those who need the Savior. Whether they're religious or rebellious, they need the same message. May God give us the grace to become more like the Lord Jesus Christ, and to be faithful to the ministry to which he has called us. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 13. We need to be faithful until we all attain to the unity of the faith. And of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man. To the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And what was he like? He was full of grace and truth in John chapter 1 and verse 14. And verse 16 and 17 says, For of his fullness we have all received in grace upon grace. For the law, condemning people and pointing out their sins, was given through Moses. But grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Praise God. We have the opportunity to know him as not our judge, but as our Savior. I hope that you do know him that way. I hope that you have repented of your sins and turned to the Savior. And then if you have Christians... Don't get self-righteous and look down on the sinners around you. 
Find a way to get to them. Share the love of Christ with them. And point them to the one who can save them from their sins. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for sending your son Jesus Christ to die for us. I thank you for the salvation that is available through him. And I thank you that many who are watching have accepted that grace and have accepted Jesus Christ as Savior. I pray that you'll help them to be faithful to him. Help us to live in such a way that it pleases you and it shows that we are different from the world. Not in a high and mighty looking down the nose way towards those who are still unsaved but a way that really honors and, and reflects your holiness and goodness. And Lord, would you use us to reach the lost for Christ. And Lord, do bring conviction of sin to those who are living that way. Help them to know your grace, to return and repent of their sins and come to you for salvation or cleansing, whichever they need. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.